0: Uh, I, so I, I shared this with some people, actually just Lauren this morning because she was in here, but there, most weeks uh, by Thursday, I know exactly what the Lord wants to say, but there's some weeks that the Lord, um, it's just things aren't clicking. Like, I'll feel like I got something. I feel like this is what the Lord, but I, I won't have a point. It's like, all right, I got this passage. I know what you want to say, but like, why? You know what I'm saying? And typically the Lord's just really, really easy with that. But this week he was not until yesterday morning and he does that. I know, because he knows if he gave it to me on Thursday, I would have two days to mess it up. I mean, if I'm being honest with you. And so, and sometimes I don't mess it up, but there's specific words that the Lord downloads that he knows you're not going to edit this if I give it to you on Saturday morning. So I'm going to wait and give it to you on Saturday morning. This is one of those. And um, so I I have a message, but I I want to start with something else um, that's going to lead into it. I feel like, and I, I started this last week, the Lord's bringing us out of, a, out of a Egypt, if you will, out of a slavery mentality and religion and tradition and whatever. And he's bringing us into a promised land. and the promised land is literally the promised land. It's all the promises the Lord gave Abraham, Abram, way back is where um, the promised land is where all those are realized and fulfilled, okay? So the Lord bringing us into something that I believe our forefathers and ancestors and all those prayed for and maybe never saw, but that we're going to get to see. But I, I, the Lord kind of, I read Joshua, I think, a piece of Joshua 1. But let me just, I want to read this this morning before we go into the rest. And this is in Joshua 3. And this is right before they go into the promised land. And, uh, and, and let me just read this. You don't have to turn there. Just, just kind of receive this. Verse 1, Joshua was up bright and early the next morning. That might be the verse that identifies me more than any other verse in the Bible. Joshua was up bright and early. That was written just about me because that's, that's me every day. Joshua was up bright and early the next morning. They broke camp, and Joshua led the Israelites um, from Akai to the eastern bank of the Jordan. There they set up camp and waited until they crossed over. After three days, which is really significant, but after three days, the leaders of the people went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. Now I want you to hear this. They said, watch the priests of the tribe of Levi to lift the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was where the Lord was enthroned, okay? So, the presence of the Lord where he was enthroned. Watch the Levites to lift the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God. When it starts moving, follow it. Now, now check this out. When it starts moving, follow it. Why? So you'll know which way to go. Since you've never marched this way before. One more, okay, one more time. Watch the priest of the tribe of Levi to lift the ark of the covenant of Yahweh your God. When it starts moving, follow it so you'll know which way to go since you've never walked this way before. Follow about half a mile behind the ark and don't go near it. Joshua instructed the people get yourselves ready. Set yourselves apart, or sanctify yourselves, for Yahweh. Tomorrow, Yahweh will perform for us great miracles. That word miracles is plural. The real interesting thing is that there was only one miracle the next day. It was the splitting of the Jordan so that they could walk across. Okay? So, he says, Get ready... Set yourselves apart for Yahweh. Tomorrow, Yahweh will perform for us great miracles. Let me read Dr. Brian Simmons' footnotes, uh, footnote right here. Some scholars are puzzled over the use of the plural word for miracles. When it was only one miracle parting the river, the plural implied the beginning of a new season of miracles and wonders as they crossed over. So, so what is he telling? Joshua telling the people. He says, you are to watch where the presence goes because where the presence is going to lead you is a way you've never been before. But the way that you've never been before is the path into the promised land. In other words, if you try to find your way in without the presence you're not going to find your way in. But if you follow the ark, if you follow where he is enthroned and where he's leading, you'll find your way in because you have never marched this way before. The Hebrew word there is way or manner. A manner you've been before. Let me just read this footnote. They were to march in a new manner with their eyes on the ark. And it points to Colossians 1.10 if you want to go back. A new order for a new day. Before they crossed the Jordan, the ark, before they crossed the Jordan, the ark had always been covered. Lord, I'm not even preaching on this, but I might. It feels good. Before they crossed the Jordan, the Ark of the Covenant had been hidden in the tent of meeting. So, okay? So before this. No, mo- almost all of the Israelites had never laid eyes on the ark because inside the tent of meeting, only one or two people had ever been allowed to go in there. Okay, So they had never laid their eyes on this, where Yahweh was enthroned. Think about this. It had always been covered, beginning when they crossed the Jordan... And entered the promised land, the ark was in plain sight. In the Old Testament, Jesus was concealed. In the New Testament, Jesus is revealed. Without all the covering, the weight on the priest's shoulders would have been less. So, so when, they, when they moved in the wilderness, the ark was covered. Therefore, when the priest carried the ark, they had to keep it covered. That covering would have added weight. So it was heavier to carry a concealed presence. But when they get to the edge of everything, not just them, their ancestors have been promised. They're about to go into the promised land. When they get to the edge, the priest removed the covering so that it's seen in plain sight, the weight of the covering is lifted, no more hiding, and now the Israelites, every single Israelite, is given the invitation to follow the Ark of the Covenant that only a handful had ever been able to follow and see in plain sight before. So, so, There's a lot of stuff I want to say, and I'm making sure I say it right so I don't get in trouble. There's a season where the Lord will unveil the depth of a revelation to a handful for the purposes of leading. So for the past couple of months, not just me, some of you too, but a handful have been seeing things that when I say no I has seen, I mean no I has seen. What the Lord's moving us into next, though, is what was once for a handful, now being for the whole congregation. For a season, it had to be for a handful, because if he had uncovered the ark in the wilderness... Because you remember what happened? Like, it, the ark of the covenant was so holy, there's stories... In the Old Testament, where somebody would accidentally touch the ark and die. You know what I mean? Where I mean, like, so, so you're talking about holy of holies situation. But now, because look what it says next. Joshua told the people, he struck them, get yourselves ready. Set yourselves apart for Yahweh. Tomorrow, Yahweh per- will perform great miracles. What he said, he's saying sanctify yourselves. He's saying set yourself apart exclusively for Yahweh because now that the ark is uncovered you're going to have to be in such a place that when it starts to lead you into the unknown the presence and the sight of what you're seeing isn't going to destroy you like it would have in another season so so where we are right now just prophetically is on the edge we're on the edge and and gazing into the promised land of what Yahweh has promised us. And here's you know what he promised me? Not the third great awakening, the last great awakening. Not the next one, the final one. This one ain't going to end. And you know why it's not going to end? Because this one isn't based on hellfire and brimstone. <laughs> right? Right? Jonathan Edwards did a great job leading the hellfire and brimstone message, and it got a lot of people so scared of hell that they ran into heaven. It did, and we called it awakening. But this awakening can be described like this. Here we go. If I had to describe what we're about to go into, this is it. This is the life-giving message that we heard him share, and it's still ringing in our ears, and we now repeat his words to you. God is pure light. You'll never even find a trace of darkness in him. Well, Josh, I wish you'd find another scripture. I'll find another scripture when we get this. And maybe even then I won't. This is what John says. He says, you want to know the gospel that we've heard? I know I'm doing uh, repeat. I'm a repeat. That's okay. Do you know the me- this is the gospel that we heard him preach? Join this religion. No. Here's the message. God is pure light. You'll never find a trace of darkness or obscurity or distortion in him. Ever. So, right? So what we're going into is not the Lord telling us how dark we are and how dark the culture is. That was the first two great awakenings, and we see where we are now. That's not a dishonor, but it is to say we stopped way short of what we were designed for. We've had two great awakenings and we're more dead today than we were before the two great awakenings. I don't know if things were awakened. I think maybe some things were awakened that were never designed to be awakened. But this great awakening is not going to be determined by how much darkness we can find ourselves living in until we escape. But in how much light we can get to expose the darkness and turn it into light. So Joshua's on the edge. They're about to go into the promised land. Joshua in the Hebrew is the same name as Jesus. Jesus' name could be Joshua. Okay? Joshua, Jesus, same name in Hebrew. So Joshua is leading his people into the promised land, and he says three commands. You follow the ark, the presence, because it's leading in a way you've never been. Okay? Okay? You prepare yourselves and set yourself apart. You're going to follow the ark where you've never been, and the way you're going to follow it is by making sure you're so set apart that you never take your eyes off the ark. Two commands. That's it. And then they watch the Jordan part. They go in. They walk around Jericho and scream, and everything comes crum- crumbling down. They go in, inherit the land. They disobey God, and he still allows them to get in. You know what I mean, just like they see amazing things. But it started with the command, you are to follow the ark so you will know which way to go because you've never marched this way before. Now, how does that sound familiar? Here's what Jesus came to say. Jesus came, and this is the message that the gospels say he preached before John writes, this is the message he actually intended for us to receive. The message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, This thing, the incarnation, is about to lead you into a kingdom you've never tasted before. But the way you're going to do that is to repent. What does repent mean? Change how you think. Another way you could say that is to set yourself apart for Yahweh. Sanctify yourself. So it's the same story. But what we're we're finding out right now, what we're receiving, and if we'll have the grace, what we're going to start living in is not, how do we get the Christian religion spread across the globe? It's how do we get the globe to realize that He died as them too? I I have no zeal to further a religion. I have a lot of zeal to wake everybody up to reality. Well, well, how are those different? Here's how it's different. Because when I'm having a conversation with somebody who is a lost coin, number one, I know where they originated. It was in his wallet. So, so, number one, I know where they originated. It was not with the devil. They originated. He tells Jeremiah, I knew you intimately before you were in your mother's womb. Ephesians 1 says you were chosen before the foundations or the fall of the earth. In love. So, So... Number one, we know we know who people are. Who are they? Chosen before the foundations of the earth, predestined to be conformed to the image of a son. So we know that. Now our job is to tell people what we know, which is not a list of rules. It's an identity that they all have within them. That is great news. God is pure light. You'll never find a trace of darkness in him, period. Well, what about the, what about the rules? They're on the rules. It's light. It's light. Okay. Well, Josh prove it? I'd love to. Okay. Let me read some stuff I've been writing, and, uh, and then we'll jump in. We'll jump in. Uh, I didn't get any messages about what I said last week, so thank you all for that. Um, I know you all had thoughts, but that's okay. Um. You believe I was shocked. You know what's funny? I actually was listening to a, a theologian this week, um, and he he said literally verbatim the same words I said. Like he was like, "You'd be shocked how many people in the South uh, can't are shocked that Jesus isn't Christian." I'm like, "Well, if you just read your Bible, you realize they weren't even called Christians till Acts. That was after he ascended. Of course he was. You know what I'm saying, Lord? But you know anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so we. Uh, uh, I'm going to end up in, Lord, where am I going to end? John 10, John 9, John 9. I'm going to end up in John 9 because I love John. John 9, but before we get there, I'm going to just read. I've only got two pages of writing today. So, C.S. Lewis once said, a uh, familiar quote, I believe in Christ as I believe that the Son has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Our journey lately, as Yahweh has been downloading this grand view of Him as light and love, can be described not only by us seeing Him more clearly, but by us seeing everything else more clearly. If all things exist through and for Him, Colossians, It makes sense that as we see him correctly, we in turn see everything else correctly that exists through and for him that we're seeing correctly, right? But what happens, or let me ask you this question, what happens as we are exposed to the light? It reveals what was once dark. So let me use an analogy. And then I'm going to read the, story, the actual story in John 9. But let me, let me just pitch you this analogy, this story. So let's say that you are in a pitch black dark room with a paintbrush and some paint. Okay? Though because it's dark, you have no clue what colors you have. And you also have a large canvas. Over time, you would paint what you could best conjure up in the dark. You would feel around for familiarity you would proceed cautiously, and you would have in your head about what you think it looks like. If it was a pitch black room, and you're just painting. In your head, you would make about what you think this thing probably looks like. But then, in this story, let's say someone comes into the room and turns the lights on. Before you can start over on a canvas in full view, With colors that you now vividly see, you must first face the poverty of what was painted in the dark. Inevitably, this painting is nothing like you envision and nothing like you know you could paint in the light. Y'all with me? But here's the catch. This is huge right here. In the dark, at least no one could see your painting, particularly you. So you have a choice to make in this story. You could stay in the dark where you'll never have to bring your canvas into view and you can hide. Or you can let Jesus turn on the lights and keep them on. You can stare the canvas down, convinced that it does not define who you are, and start over in the light for all to see who you really are. This is what we're walking through right now. That in the dark, what was painted in the dark is nasty looking. But at least nobody had to see it. Right now, Yahweh's walking in the room and flipping all the lights on. And as he is, myself, the primary one right now, we're having to make the choice, do we want to stay in the light, stare at the canvas that I have painted for 25 years in the dark, in all of its ugliness, to the point that I can throw it away and paint something in the light that I was designed to paint, or do I want to walk over to the light switch and flip it off because then at least I wouldn't have to stare at the canvas. Th- this is where we are. Religion, i got to move this. Thank you all for this. This has been amazing. Um, religion taught us to survive and live in the dark. Let me, let me, let me ex- expound on this. We be- you ready for this? We believe death is our true salvation in religion. But we also believe that death is the enemy. What do you mean? Here's what we believe. We believe we're not going to be whole and full and well and everything we were designed to be until we die and float away. But we also believe that that same death was defeated on a cross. And it was the enemy. So what what we believe is our enemy, we subconsciously also believe is our salvation so we're trying to get everybody we're trying to get everybody to join our club so that when they die they can be with him nobody's talking about the fact that we were never designed to be looking ahead to death we were designed to be so convinced of our life here that we never die so even when you take your last breath before resurrection by the way adding that caveat but before you take your last breath until you're put on hold until you're resurrected when you transition face-to-face with Jesus, it's as if you've been there since the very beginning before you took your last breath. That's what we were designed for. I guarantee you when Paul was beheaded, I guarantee you when he was staring at Jesus face-to-face, he was not shocked at what he was seeing. It was grander than he ever dreamed. But when he stared Jesus face-to-face, I guarantee you everything in him says, I know exactly what this is. Because Paul was not living his life to die he was living his life because he inherited a life that death could not comprehend. So, so what we're doing is we're trying to get people to, into a religion so that when they die, they'll be full. But then on the way there, we're telling people that Jesus defeated death. And we wonder why. So, so your salvation is when you die. However, you're not going to die. Huh? You know what I'm saying? I, th- I mean, this is it's unbelievable. Jesus is right now calling us out of the darkness of distorted identity and into the light of who we really are in Him. Do not allow the fact that you've become or I've become comfortable in hiding behind the veil of distortion or darkness cause you to sort circuit or bail out on what Yahweh is doing in us right now. Do not let comfortability get you to the point where you bail out on what he's doing right now. Because if you can persevere, so Hebrews says you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. That's what Hebrews 10 says. You need to persevere. He was telling them to persevere. The fact that they might get shred apart by horses for believing this. I'm telling you to persevere because you might be a little uncomfortable for a season. Huh? Right? Man, this, you, you might have to change how you think about a few things. You need to persevere. Paul's, whoever wrote Hebrews, I believe it might have been Paul, but whoever wrote Hebrews is saying, no, you need to persevere. You might get ripped to shreds, literally. You might get boiled in boiling water until you die for this. But you need to persevere through that so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he promised. I'm telling you, you need to persevere. Persevere through what? You might have to change a few things that you think about. He's not telling them, you need to start tithing. Got my Lord. They, you know, they gave the whole, they sold the whole farm for it. That's not what he's telling them. We have to convince people to tithe today because we're doing the death thing. If you tithe, you'll store up treasure in a place that you're going to float away to one day. No, you know why you need to tithe? Because we need economics in this world so that the knowledge of the glory of the world can cover the earth as the waters cover the sea through you and I having the resources to do it. That's why. Why do you need to tithe to the church? Because we're trying to do cosmic transformation. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not so that you can be blessed. You will be blessed. Absolutely. But that's not why you give. That's not why I give. That's not why our church gives. Our church tithes. And the reason we tithe is not because we believe we're going to get rich out of it. It's it's because we believe in other organizations and other churches that are spreading this across the globe just like he's doing here. But religion taught us to live and survive in the dark as long as we possibly could, hoping we'd get out before we died in the dark. On the other side of what is happening right now, Is life in full color of true redeemed identity that you and I belong in? If we can stand in the light until all of our darkness and distortions are exposed, listen to this we'll never again know what it means to be an Adam. Heaven and new creation can be described as this. You ready? if somebody asks me, "What do you? How do you describe new creation in heaven?" It's not pearly gates. Not streets. Those are going to be great. Streets of gold, awesome. If I had to describe heaven and new creation in one word, and earth, what it's going to become? Here's the word: light. Light. On earth as it is in heaven. How many of you believe that one person in heaven right now is struggling with distorted identity? None. On earth as it is in heaven. Listen, I, like it's the miracles, amazing, all that stuff, amazing. That's you know that's what we're called to do. We are not called to do that until we're convinced that we are in the light and there's not a shred of darkness in us. Which is why we're not doing it right now. We're, it's not, it, we're not seeing this. We're, we're we're seeing the sick healed, but we're not seeing it at the level we were designed to see it. And it's not because the Lord said cessation. You know what I'm saying? That's not why. You know why? Unless a wineskin becomes new, I cannot pour out new wine because if it's an old wineskin, it'll burst and the wine will be ruined. Right? So if I poured out signs and wonders on the level that Jesus experienced right now on this, you know what they would do? Market it until they created a thousand megachurches. So what happened? So he's going to get us convinced of who we are and then he's going to say... Here's new wine. And we're not going to have to strive. We're not going to have to convince people. We're not going to have to do, you know, uh, uh, campaigns to get people to, to do what they're called to do or to be what they're called to be. We're, they're going to be that because such a light is being shed abroad from us that it's causing every other darkness around us to become illegal to be there. I haven't hit John 9. Here we go. John 9. Y'all with me? Y'all there? 30 minutes. So hopefully you're there. <laughs> All right. All right, here we go. John 9, verse 1. Y'all good? Okay. Verse 1. As he went along, I'm just going to read the whole thing. As he went along, he saw a man, Jesus is he, saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that, uh, his parents, that he was born blind? I'm reading the NIV. "'Neither this man nor his parents sinned,' said Jesus, "'but this happened so that the works of God "'might be displayed in him. "'As long as it's day, we must do the works of him "'who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. "'While I am in the world, I am the light of the world.'" While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. After saying this, uh, just, just hang on to these details. After saying this, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. Lord, 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 help me not chase a bunch of rabbits. But chase the ones that I need to. So the man went and washed and came home seeing the pool of Siloam. That word means sent. Do you know what the word apostle means? Sent. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? I don't know. I don't know. Now, I'm going to switch over for this next part and read it in the Passion Translation. So, y'all can hang with me, but I'm just going to read this next part in here because it's way better. All right. John 9, verse 13. Verse 13. Uh, So, the people marched him over to the Pharisees, of course. then praise God. "Man, Man, this man is blind. Now he can see. No, they took him to the Pharisees to speak with them. They were concerned. (laughs) <laughs> Lord, man, I, see, they were very concerned because the miracle Jesus performed by making clay with his saliva and anointing the man's eyes happened on the Sabbath day, uh-oh, a day that no one was allowed to work. How could he? Then the Pharisees asked the man, how did you have your sight restored? This is amazing. I want you to hear this coming up, this next in- interaction. He replied, A man anointed my eyes with clay, then I washed. Now I can see for the first time in my life. Then an argument broke out among the Pharisees over the healing of the blind man on the Sabbath. Some said, This man who performed this healing is clearly not from God. (laughs) He doesn't even observe the Sabbath. He heals the blind. The Sabbath, my Lord. Others said, If Jesus is just an ordinary sinner, how could he perform a miracle like that? Amen. This prompted them to turn on the man healed of blindness. Lord, I can't right now. This prompted them to turn on the man healed of blindness, putting him on the spot in front of all of them, demanding an answer. They ask, who do you say he is, this man who opened your eyes? He's a prophet of God, the man replied, still refusing to believe that the man had been healed and was truly blind from birth. Now they're questioning the fact that he was even blind. The Jewish leaders called for the man's parents to be brought to them. So they asked his parents, is this your son? Yes, they answered. Was he really born blind? Yes, he was, they replied. So they pressed his parents to answer. Then how is it that he's now seeing? Don't you hear this? We have no idea, they answered. We don't know what happened to our son. Ask him. He's a mature adult. He can speak for himself. <laughs> now, that's funny, but listen to why they said this. Verse 22. The parents were obviously intimidated by the Jewish religious leaders, for they had already announced to the people that if anyone publicly confessed Jesus the Messiah, they would be excommunicated. That's why they told them, ask him, him, He's a mature adult. He can speak for himself. I, I, I wonder how much legacy has been thrown to the wolves because generations have been afraid of religion's backlash. How many sons or daughters started coming fully alive? in the revelation of who they really are, but because it didn't line up with religion, fathers and mothers, not it could be literal, it could be pastors and leaders, fathers and mothers rejected them because of what religion would say about them coming fully alive. So once again, they summoned the man who was healed of blindness and said to them, said to him, excuse me, swear to God to tell us the truth. We know the man who healed you is a sinful man. Do you agree? Lord, check this out. I would give anything to be a fly on the wall in this. The healed man replied, I have no idea what kind of man he is. All I know is that I was blind and now I can see for the first time in my life. But what did he do to you? They asked. How did he heal you? The man responded. You ready for this? I told you once and you didn't listen to me. Why do you make me repeat it? Are you wanting to be his followers too? This is my dude. He said, "I already told you. you want, are you want me to repeat it because you want to follow him too?" Of course. <laughs> this angered the Jewish leaders, and they heaped insults on him. It's what religion does. We can tell you. We can tell you are one of his followers. Now we know it. We are true followers of Moses, for we know that God spoke to Moses directly. But as for this one, we don't know where he's coming from. Well, what a surprise, the man said. You don't even know where he comes from, but he healed my eyes and now I can see. We know that, Lord, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but only to godly people who do his will. Yet who has ever heard of a man born blind that was healed and given his eyesight for the very first time? I tell you, if this man isn't from God, he wouldn't be able to heal me like he has. Some of the Jewish leaders were enraged and said, Just who do you think you are to lecture us? You were born a blind, filthy sinner, so they threw the man out in the street. Religion will always identify you by what you were when religion found you. I'm about to get in so much trouble. Because if you can be identified by what you were when they found you, you can be caged into the system threatening to unveil what you were when they found you. How many anointed worship leaders have we brought into the religious system, but the way we threatened to keep them there was, I know who you are or I know what you've done. When Jesus learned they had thrown him out, when Jesus learned who? Religion. When Jesus learned they threw him out, he went to find him. And he said, after he had been thrown out of religion, do you believe in the Son of God? The man whose blind eyes were healed answered, who is he, master? Tell me so that I can place all my faith in him. Bad to the bone right here. You ready? Jesus replied, you're looking right at him. He's speaking with you. It's me, the one in front of you now. Then the man threw himself at his feet and worshiped Jesus and said, Lord, I believe in you. Now, listen to this footnote right here. Although this man had never been able to read the scriptures, because he was blind, he had faith in Jesus. Traditions and superficial knowledge of the Bible can actually blind our hearts if we do not believe in Jesus above all other religious dogmas. Many of those who knew the Scriptures refused to believe. The religious scholars. The miracle of blind eyes opening is proof that God has come to us. This man had been blind. And not just blind, because he was blind, religion had thrown him out in the streets. This man had never heard the gospel, whatever that was before Jesus came. This man had never heard the teaching of the Old Testament. This man had never read the scriptures. He couldn't see. So the man who had been on the fringes of this immediately recognizes the Son of God. Those who had spent their whole lives pouring over the scriptures not only did not believe this man was the Son of God, they believed this man was a devil. Salah. So what the Lord's doing in us is he's opening blind eyes, but as he does, the parts in us that have been works and works and works and works and works, and works is going to start to say, this can't be it. All right, let me, get my, let me get to my notes. The man threw himself down. He worshiped some of the Pharisees. Verse 41 just finished up. Some of the Pharisees were standing nearby, and they over—let me back up. 39. Jesus said to the man, after he said, I believe in you, I have come to judge those who think they can see and make them blind. And for those who are blind, I've come to make them see. Some of the Pharisees that were standing by heard these words. They interrupted Jesus and said, you mean to tell us that we're blind? Jesus told them, if you would acknowledge your blindness... Then your sin, hamartea, formlessness, without form, then your sin would be removed. But now that you claim to see it, your sin remains with you, your formlessness. This, this is unreal. The Pharisees hear this, and they say, you mean to tell us we're blind? And he says, if you would acknowledge the fact that you're actually blind, I would open your eyes so you could see. But because you refuse to acknowledge what you really are, I can't do anything with what you really are because you're hidden to what you really are. He's saying, if you would acknowledge what you really are, which is blind, I could transform who you really are into who you really are, which is somebody that can see. But because you're living in the distortion or in the darkness or in sin, because you're living thinking that you're something that you're not, I can't do something with what you are because you won't acknowledge what you are not. Uh, all right, like, Josh, what did you just say? Do you sometimes, because we refuse to go into the light, typically we refuse to go into the light because we know what it will expose. And we've become comfortable with what it will expose because that's the stuff we've been hiding in our whole lives. We've shown everybody the mask, but behind the mask is the parts of us that have hidden in the darkness. I'm speaking about me. I don't know about y'all. Maybe y'all are perfect, but that's me. So what the Lord's doing is he's saying, let me take that mask and let me bring the real you out. On the other side of bringing the real us out is complete transformation and true identity. But in the process of him bringing us out, it requires us to acknowledge the fact that we've been blind to things that we've said we weren't blind to. Amen, brother. All right, verse two. Let me just go back. They saw this man's blindness, the disciples, as a result of sin. In other words they believe because of a sin either by him or his parents that he was punished with his incurable forever blindness this sounds to me and it's just me a lot like not grace karma what we call karma which is you do something you get something returned to you that's equal to about what you did you hear that in our society all the time dumb but like that you hear that all the time so What the disciples are talking about is that. They're saying, is this man blind because of what he did or his parents? In other words, this has to be the result of something that somebody did. Right? But in verse 3, Jesus begins the dismantling of this karma-type cause-and-effect thinking that religion hinges on, which is you do blank and you get blank, but if you do blank, you get blank. It's all cause and effect. Does this sound familiar? It's if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this, you're in. But if you do this, and you do this, and you do this, you're out. It's religion. Cause and effect. In verse 3, Jesus begins dismantling this. Grace says, I don't care what the blank is. Here is your gift. Amen? Lord. Like, This is what grace says. Grace goes to the man blind saying, I don't care what your parents done or what you've done. I'm going to open your eyes. And him opening the man's eyes, not based on whether or not he was worthy of the man's eyes being open, but him opening the man's eyes out of sheer desire from Father, Son, and Spirit that found itself in the incarnation in Jesus Sheer desire said, I desire your eyes to be open. I don't care what you've done. And he opens the man's eyes, which is why religion has such a big problem with it. Because they see this man walking around and they're thinking, this man ain't done jack diddly to, be, to have his eyes open. This can't be God. God is, if you do this and this and this and this and this, your eyes can be open." And Jesus comes to flip everything on its head and say, I did not come to have a religion of you doing this to earn this. I came to give you what I desired you to have, whether or not you even want it. Verse 5, he says, and and let me me edit this for a minute. Um, And I I know it's real dangerous to do this, but it's real dangerous to not do this too. Verse 9, verse 5, or chapter 9, verse 5. It says this. The NIV says, another translation, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Wrong. Here's what the word while, while means. In the Greek, it's the word holten. Holten in the Greek. And it means whenever or, specifically, every time. Not while. Okay? So in the Greek, in the Greek, the word or the action is repeated. That's so what the Greek word is. So here's, so, it's not, while I'm with you, I'm the light of the world. What it really is is, every time I'm with you, I am the light of the world. That r- drastically changes the whole narrative. But, but because we have come at this with a certain way of thinking, we've slid ideas in here that aren't even original. And I mean, like, I might be the only one that's exposing. That's okay. If you read, while I am with you, I am the light of the world, here's how you process this. Oh, okay, Jesus was saying, while he's with them, but then when he crucifies the resurrection, he's gone. So he's saying, While I'm with you, I'm the light of the world. What the Greek, what what this verse is, what John wrote, was not while Jesus is with you. John wrote, every single time Jesus is with you, he's the light of the world. That that's for us today. If you read while, that places Jesus in 80, 20, 30, 40, whatever day, and us at a distance trying to create a bridge across this great chasm to get over there, typically cause and effect religion. But if it's whenever or every time I'm with you, I'm the light of the world, it places Jesus right here and now. Amazing. Okay, thank you. So if you, you can go in there and just mark it. This is what I do mark it out and just write every time. And uh, watch everybody send you emails, it's really fun. So, I'm the light of the world. This entire story, and I'm, that's the last, I'm not going to go through verse by verse, I just want to hit those couple of verses, and then my notes are done. <laughs> this entire story is a story of Jesus changing the entire system built on hamartia, often sin, formlessness. When you have distorted form or identity, everything you do is an attempt to gain or earn identity thus the cause and effect or karma like system the incarnation was a returning to our original form by way of the original method this is huge i need if you missed everything that you got to get this okay the incarnation was not just us returning to our original form it was us returning to our original form by way of the original method not what we did to earn our place in Father, Son, Spirit, but how much they desired us to be with them that spun our creation and form within Father, Son, and Spirit. In Genesis 2, what does it say? Genesis 1 and 2, when it gives the narratives of creation, what does it say? Let us make man in our image. Man wasn't even created yet. But God let us make man in our image and they spun out Adam. Adam didn't choose it. Adam didn't have a say in it. Adam was raised up out of sheer desire from Father, Son, Spirit. They didn't go down a list of what he might do and might not do. They didn't go down a list of what he might say and not say. They didn't go down a list of what he might be a part of and might not be a part of. They said, let us make man in our image, period. (sighs) So Jesus comes after centuries of us thinking that our role in this whole thing is to do this and this and this so that we can get back in the spin, Jesus comes and says, no, you're not going to get back in the spin by way of something that never got you there in the first place. The only way you're going to get back into the spin is if desire comes in the form of Jesus to die on a cross that you did not choose, that you deserve, so that you could be back into the spin, not by what you did, but by desire. Are y'all getting this? Lord, I hope. I mean, this is massive. This is huge that Jesus did not come to fix our actions. Jesus came to get us back in the spin. But to get us back in the spin, some actions had to be shifted because of our new identity. Not to get us a new identity, but because of a new identity. Holiness is not what you do to earn your place. Holiness is what you do because you've earned your place. Righteousness is not what you do to earn a right spot. Righteousness is what you do because you're in your right spot. (sighs) Man. Verse 6, verse 6, he anoints the man's eyes with clay or dirt. Does that sound familiar? When is another place where we see the Lord taking dirt and creating something original? Where, where Where is it? Genesis 2, Jesus takes the dirt, he spits on it, places the dirt on the man's eyes. He's literally taking this man back to the beginning. And he's saying, go and wash in the pool of what? Apostleship. Of being sent. The man washes, and when the dirt is removed, he can see for the first time in his life. The transition from blindness to being able to see was not what the man did. It was Jesus putting him back into his original place. I'm about to cry and explode at the same time. Starting in verse 8, all the way through the end, we see how the religious spirit reacts once our eyes are open to see in full color. Specifically, they believe that he was blind because he was a sinner. Jesus opened his eyes by way of seeing him for who he truly was, a son. One more time, because y'all didn't hear that one. They believed he was blind because he was a sinner, because of what he did, which, by the way, he hadn't even done. They believed he was blind because of an action. Jesus opened his eyes by way of seeing him for who he truly was, which was son, Inclusion in the gospel is not a cause and effect. Inclusion. You do blank and you're included. No, it's a God-desired inclusion that says, like Luke 15, he will get all his kids back at whatever the cost necessary, at whatever the redemption and forgiveness necessary. We sing songs like Scandal of Grace... Like, man, this is amazing. No, it's scandalous because we didn't do anything for it. And we cannot process this. This is why people are more comfortable doing the every Sunday, you know, thing for 30 minutes. Like, we're more comfortable doing that because at least we can keep our cause and effect thing. And you know what cause and effect religion really is? Control. I control this. What Jesus came was to introduce us to a identity where you don't have control. He does. And we can't make that transition. Because as long as I'm in control, I know exactly how this thing, I can choose my job, I can choose where I go, I can choose what I do, I can choose the people around me, and I can choose what part of ministry I want to be in, what part I don't want to be in. But if you're not in control, he gets to pick that. And guess what you get to do? Live life to the full. I mean, what a concept. You know what I'm saying? We'd rather live life in slavery but be in control, than to live life in peace and an ever increasing government of Yahweh, but Jesus be in control. Take my weight; it's easy, and my burden is light. Nope, we'd rather keep our heavy load because at least we can learn how to carry it better. Like it's, the Lord doesn't want you to be stronger; the Lord wants you to be freer. That's just that's free, okay? That's free. Matthew twenty one. Let me just read this. Y'all good? All right? Tim and Hannah, I'm glad y'all are back. We're struggling for a couple weeks. Matthew 21. Let, let me just, let me just read, read this. 28 through 31. Check this out. It's amazing. He says, uh, uh, there was a, there's a debate, blah, 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 blah. Um, then Jesus says, we, uh, they say, we don't know. Then neither will I tell you from where my power comes from to do these things. He replied. So then Jesus gives this parable of the two sons. And I want you to hear this. Jesus said to his critics, tell me what you think of this parable. I want to do that one day. Y'all don't believe me? Just tell me what you think about this. There once was a man with two sons. The father came to the first and said, son, I want you to go and work in a vineyard today. The son replied, I'd rather not. That can relate to just about everybody in our culture right now. I want you to go work. I'd rather not, you know? <laughs> right? Right? Get a job. All right. All right. Um, I mean, let that be a word right now. If some of y'all sitting at, sitting at home doing nothing. It's time to get a job. All right. So <laughs> it's, it's long, right? Oh, well, man, that government money's coming in hot. It won't for long. And it's coming in hot because it's mine. All right. Lord, help us. This isn't political. All right. So, the son replied, I'd rather not. But afterward, he deeply regretted what he said to his father, changed his mind, and decided to go to the vineyard. The father approached the second son. I want you to hear this. And said, to, said the same thing to him. I want you to go work this vineyard. The son replied, Father, I will go and do as you said. But he never did. And he didn't go to the vineyard. Tell me now, Jesus said, which of these two sons did the will of his father? They answered the first one. Jesus said, you're right. For many sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes are going into God's kingdom realm ahead of you. <laughs> Can you believe this? The, the, you, do you know who the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes were? The ones that religion not only had rejected, I mean, they like threw them to the wolf. They're like, we don't want, we don't even want to see you. And Jesus comes and doesn't say, you know what, they're going to be in too. He says, no, they're actually finding this before you do. You know, you know why they're finding this before you do? I don't need it, it's fine. You know why? Because at least they don't have a religious bone in their body. To them, Receiving something they didn't earn is a lot easier to receive than the ones who have spent their whole lives in a system that said you have to do something to earn something. Yeah. And I'm t- this, is, this is what we're going to see. I promise you we're going to see this in our life. We're going to see this. That there's going to be a transition. And the ones that we thought would never have a place in this are going to be leading it. Yeah. And it ain't going to look like anything we've ever seen. But it's going to be the kingdom come, the will done on earth as it is in heaven. And when that happens, every other religious person is going to start talking behind its back saying, that's not it. And I, pro- you mark my words. When you start hearing that, you can confirm it's absolutely it. And I hope we're going to be the first ones to do that. This is where we see the Bible. Jesus, God, the kingdom, etc. cetera. That's my last couple of notes. Through the wrong glasses. We believe Jesus came to help us do cause and effect karma religion better. By the blood, we can do it. That it was impossible for us to work our way in before in the Old Testament, but Jesus came to make work a little bit easier by his blood so that we'd have better odds of doing the right things enough to earn our ticket in the sky. But Jesus' incarnation and our conception was not behavioral or obligatory, it was relational. Jesus becoming sin, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, Jesus becoming sin, formlessness, us, on our behalf, wasn't so we could act better. It was so that he could have us relationally forever once again, with emphasis on once again. This isn't something new. People aren't being invited into a life that's brand new to them. This is something they originated in. This is what I'm trying to tell you. We're not trying to win people into something they've never known before. They may not have ever um, been awakened to the fact that they have no, never known it before. they've known it all their lives. But this isn't something that they've never known before. It's something that's natural. Natural. Our world is searching for unnatural means to be happy and fulfilled right now because the church has offered unnatural means to get them happy and full and healthy. And we called it religion. If you stop doing this, you'll be happy. No, if you'll believe that you are what he says you are, no matter how much the insides of you kick back against it, you'll be happy. The Pharisees hated Jesus. I got a story for y'all, and then I promise you I'm done. I promise you. But I lie sometimes. The Pharisees hated Jesus. This is just too good. Not because he didn't keep the law. They didn't hate Jesus because he didn't keep the law. He was the law. The word made flesh and dwelt among us, in us, not among us, in us. He was the law. They didn't hate him because he didn't keep the law. He was the law. They hated him because he fulfilled the law differently than their thinking assumed it should be filled. To them, everything was about what you do, doing all the right things. Jesus came to show us it was not about you doing the right things to please the big man upstairs. It was about God's decision to be in relationship with us. This this story comes right after in John 9. It comes right after John 8 where Jesus forgives the adulterous woman. You know that one? He who's without sin cast the first stone. That's in John 8. And then he says he's the the light of the world. Then he gets accused by the Pharisees, of course, of being demon-possessed. And then John 9 comes in. This is major, so don't miss this. Friday morning, Friday morning, this whisper is the one that I heard. You ready? That's where we're going to end. Matt, you can, you can go ahead and come up here. Um, Matt's been doing awesome leading worship. Like, have y'all just like, he's just been doing amazing. So I'm super thankful for you, Matt. Um, But Friday morning, the Lord whispered this to me, and I just want to share this. It has, and I I pray, Holy Spirit, just let let us process this correctly. It has never been about rule keeping or score keeping, where you must work to get a good enough score to win the game of life. It has always been about relationship. But here's the thing not of our choosing, but of His. That is, that is massive. The incarnation was God's eternal yes to us in relationship and God's eternal no. To darkness that once stood in between us and him in relationship. That's what it was. The incarnation. I need you to understand this that it was not ever about, it was always about relationship. I don't think we struggle with that. It was always about relationship. Here's the part I think we struggle with relationship, not of our choosing, of his choosing. We we think we don't access it unless we choose it. He's telling us you access it because I chose it. This I don't listen. I, the Lord's saying I want you to choose it absolutely. But just so we're clear, this is not because of what you chose. This is because what we chose before the foundations of the earth. In love, we chose you. That's what Paul says. Romans, Ephesians one. I read it last week. You were chosen before the foundation of the earth. What does that mean? So that I have a great calling? No, you were chosen. You were marked to be his before the foundations of the earth. And the incarnation was him coming to make sure that we did nothing to mess Not with what we desired, but with what He desired, which is you and me and all of us together in the spin of Father, Son, and Spirit from now into eternity, no matter what we do, no matter how far we run, no matter how much we reject it, He chose it, not us. That is the gospel. It's not you choose this and you get this, it's He chose this and it is finished. Man, this is so good. Veda, let me me just give you an analogy of this. Veda did not choose to be born. (laughs) Veda never chose to be born. And she never chose to be in relationship with me and Jordan. Ever. Right? Her originators chose for her to be born. Jordan and I. We chose, not her. She did nothing to earn a relationship with Jordan and I. She was the product of Jordan and I deciding to share our relationship with her. She was born eternally accepted in the fullness of our relationship because we chose her in relationship before she was ever conceived. Therefore, no action can undo what Jordan and I have chosen. We did not say when she was born, do this and you'll have what we have. We said before she ever took a breath, she will always have what we have. I'm I'm trying my best to get you to see this. I'm trying my best, and I pray the Holy Spirit. Veda never chose to take a breath. We chose. She is everything to Jordan and I, not because of what she's done, but because of a choice that Jordan and I exclusively made to share what we have with her. She, now, when we look at our life, it's not Jordan and I, it's Jordan, I, and Veda. Not because she ever chose it, but because we chose to make space for her to be involved in that. She could never lose it. She could cuss me out and spit in my face and slap me in the face and run. And you know what she would always be for eternity? My daughter. I know that's not what religion taught us. That's the point. Religion told us that this was all on us. Jesus, his whole life, and the apostles. Remember, the man went and washed in the pool of apostleship. So the Lord sends apostles into our lives so that we can make sure we are washed in originality. This is why it is dangerous for us to dishonor those the Lord has sent to guide us into truth. Dangerous because the Lord's calling us to be washed in the revelation that can only come by way of an apostle that's been washed before you. But he goes and washes. He comes out and he can see the whole story. Religion saying, how did this man see? He's never done anything. Jesus is saying, this man can see because I chose for him to see. I don't care what he's done. I know what he's done. And I still chose to open his eyes. How does this change the people around us that we thought there was no hope for? Let me just let me just finish this. We say born again. First off, is born again is not even right. It's born from above or born from origin. I like, that's my favorite one. Born from origin. But we say, us being born again, repent. For the kingdom of heaven, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born from origin. Okay? Being born again is not something that we can do, but something our originator has done. Remember, remember the story of Veda. Veda didn't choose to be born. We chose for her to be born. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And you know what he has in his mind? Not Nicodemus doing a set of rules. The cross. What does he say? You ready? What does he say at the cross? This is my last part. What does he say at the cross? Paul says he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. Jesus Right before he gives up his spirit, right before he dies, he says, he says, it is finished and dies. When Jesus died, Jesus was finished for three days, okay? It is finished is connecting who Jesus is to that which is finished because he dies right after. You with me? So Jesus is telling them what's happening and then it happens, It is finished, he is finished. What does Paul say he is? Sin. What is sin? Hamartea, formlessness, without form. It is finished and he dies. Now, what is John 19, 34? Don't go look. What spills, remember what I just said about being born again? What spills from the side of Jesus when it is pierced after it was finished? Blood and what? Water. Now, let me ask you, Any nurses in the room, or maybe people that know this, what pours from a womb after a baby is born? Blood and water. Nicodemus, you must be born again. God forgive us for ever making that about a sinner's prayer. You know what I'm saying? Forgive us for ever making that about a stinking sinner's prayer that we got to get people to repeat so that they can join our club called Christianity. No, what Jesus did on the cross was a lot more than give us access to a particular prayer. What Jesus did on the cross was birth us again from origin. What was finished? That which kept us from origin. Sin. I mean, this is the gospel. This is what the early church taught. This is what your Bible reads. If you'll see it, this is what it says. Ephesians 1, that's what Colossians 1 means. That's what Romans means. That's what Hebrews means. That's what First and 2 Thessalonians, all of it is talking about Jesus coming to do something much more than create a religion. They had religion, and it was strict. So if that's what he came to do, they already had it. He wasn't coming to give them another set of rules. He was coming to give them what the rules never could. What they were that he knew intimately before their mother's womb. Which is why when he's on the cross, he even looks at the Pharisees that he has argued with. And confronted and done all this his whole ministry. And he looks at those after all this other stuff, after the prostitutes, after the sin. What does he say? I just read it. He says, prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners are getting in before you do. That does not mean they're not going to get in, too. He just says, they're getting in before you do. So he finishes the whole thing by looking at them and he says, Father, forgive them. They didn't know. The, the ones that called him devil, the ones that spit at him, the ones that rejected him, the ones that tried to kill him and stone him that he got away from. Not just the tax collectors, not the sinners. He already did this. But he looks at those and says, they didn't know. But they will. They didn't know. So there's two things on the Lord's mind right now. There's us coming out of the darkness and into what? Marvelous light. But then here's the thing. Y'all may think I could give two rips about religion, and you'd be right. God could give two rips. However, 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 I believe what's coming on the back end of us getting redeemed in our identity is religion getting redeemed of its identity. They may not get it first, but they're going to get it. I don't know how to end this. um, But I'm just going to say just a dad moment for a minute, and then I'll pray. Um, I've, I've got to be a dad in this church. And I think for a long time, for a season, we've had people come and go and leave, and the whole nine yards, like we've had since day one, and the temptation when that happens is for me to get back into what is natural for me, which is to perform. There's natural. That's something I fight all the time because I'm so used to my performance. And in one season, my performance, my performance is what helped churches explode. So when people start to walk out the door, everything in my guts says, if you just get back to that performance thing, people wouldn't leave. If you would shorten your sermons, people wouldn't leave. If you'd stop talking about this stuff in the rapture, people wouldn't leave. You know what I mean? If you'd stop telling people it's okay they didn't tithe, people wouldn't leave. But I, I did. We did not start this church so that we could have a good life-giving community. I hope I'm, we're going to have that. But the primary reason we started this church is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the only reason. And out of that, we will have a life. But but you you have. This is how the Lord wants to end this you have to cut ties of codependency with me. Some of you, or others, some of you, the greatest revelation you receive from the Lord comes on a Sunday morning through me. That's not a bad thing, but you, but you you've, a lot of people have grown codependent. So let me ask you this. If I tomorrow said, I'm done, I'm not gonna lead this anymore, would you still be here? Let's all be real. Most people would not. Let's just be real, right? And that doesn't say anything about me. It says that there is something in us that is naturally drawn to a codependency. That's why, let me just family talk for a minute. That's why we struggle with community because we look for other people to create community for us. That's called codependency. That's why. And and listen, I'm terrible at that. I can't do that. I won't do that. What I will do, though, is pour fuel on your fire week in and week out until all that stuff becomes natural. But, y'all, we've got to cut this codependency thing. You know what I'm saying? Like we've got to have individual flames, so that when we show up on Sundays, it creates wildfires. I'm not going around making sure all the flames are lit for the rest of the week. You know what I'm saying? It's huge stuff. Like this—this is how we need to end this. Is we're going into September, and it's going to be—it's going to be so bad to the bone. You—you won't even believe it. I promise you. We're getting a taste of it right now. I promise you, it's going to be insane. All of our family that's been gone for the summer is going to be back. It's just going to be so cool. But in the meantime, these are little tune-ups that we've got to make. We have to make this, okay? Okay, if you're here for one thing, Jesus tells John, what did you go into the wilderness to see about John? A reed blowing in the wind? No, 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 no. You went into the wilderness to find something man has never experienced before. And in that point, it just happened to be in John. At this point, it's in Jesus. You're not here because you came to experience a great preacher or a great music ministry. That's not why you're here. And if you think you're here for that, you're gonna leave. I should help you out. You will. You won't last here long. The reason you're here is because there is a frequency that is present in this house because we've just said yes, that everything in your guts that originated before your mother's womb is saying that is the frequency that I was made in. That's why you're here. So what we've got to do is go deeper. We cannot get complacent We can't allow things in our life to get in front of what we're doing here. Like, listen, it's time to step it up. It's time to get disciplined, not in our works, but in our thinking. And we're going to see some wild stuff. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to try to finish. And then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go eat. Lord, I honor you today. I honor you today for what you're doing. And publicly in front of this whole family, I say yes to being a dad, a spiritual father. I'm not here for awards. I'm not here for accolades. I'm not here for influence. I'm here for sons and daughters being manifested in the image that creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for. That's why I'm here. I'm here to stoke flames and have my flames stoked by other brothers and sisters in the room. That's why we're here. So, Lord, I pray that you would just light those flames of longing this week. Let Monday through Saturday be the greatest encounters of our week and Sunday be the fuel for the fires of Monday through Saturday. Let that be who we are. Let us take these seeds that we talked about today home and watch them grow. We don't know how they grow. We don't know how they're maturing, but we know that they're growing because it's producing something in our inner garden that we did not know existed before. Let that begin to happen in us as we take these seeds home. I thank you for this family. I thank you for a family that's willing to say yes to the one thing, the one thing. And as we say yes to that, all other desires begin to be fulfilled in the one thing. So we love you and honor you in your name. I pray for salvation, salvation. Now that we're starting to see what salvation really is. I pray that we'll start to see that salvation because Lord, the fruit that's gonna flow from us knowing the identity of every human being on planet earth is going to be insane. And so we say yes and thank you for it in advance. It's in your name that we pray, amen.